As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As 2022 comes to a close, the Weather Geeks team takes a look back at the biggest weather moments and stories from the year and what we've learned from them to take away into the new year. I'm joined today by on-camera meteorologist Jen Carfagno, also one of the hosts of America's Morning HQ, senior weather producer J.D. Disharoon, and weather producer Melissa Coggett. Thank you all for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's good to be here. I can't believe it's the end of 2022 already. And, and what a year it was. I mean, I know for you all at the Weather Channel, uh, you are focusing on these events and it seems that you were hit with so many big stories as, as we see in any given year. So it's almost very difficult to choose where to start. I could start chronologically. I could start from the biggest weather event, but I just want to dive in and have a conversation, a round table. And I think I want to start with one of the more recent events and perhaps work our way backwards in the year. Um, what comes to mind first, and we're recording this in December, is the significant lake effect snow event that we just saw in Buffalo. That was an epic event. I mean, I, I said to someone, it may have been a historic, no, it was a historic event, uh, seven feet of snow. Uh, Jen, what were your first thoughts when you saw the potential of that particular lake effect snow event in Western New York? My very first thought is I was bummed to be off because I wanted to work that snowstorm. Every meteorologist had their hand up to go out, you know, in the snow. It was we knew that that was going to be an epic event. You could just tell, especially by the fetch, the the the, the amount of water that the wind was going to travel over. It was just that perfect setup. But even when you you see that from time to time, but to get you know seven feet of snow that really just surpassed any expectation. I, I can't even. I mean, I saw the images of the uh, Buffalo Bills Stadium, for example, and believe it or not, there were people questioning initially. Uh, the NFL's decision to move that game in the days leading up to the event. Uh, I'd say it was a no brainer, but I think there was a little bit of that normalcy bias in there. Oh, we're Buffalo. We get these types of snowstorms all the time, which we do, um, but we don't get seven feet of snow normally. And to top it off and to Jim Cantori's delight, it was a thunder snow event as well. There was quite a bit of lightning uh, in that uh, storm. JD, you were covering this as a, a producer at the Weather Channel. Uh, how are you framing this entire story of this lake effect snow event? Uh, you know, we have the basics. You know, this is one of the biggest snowfalls they've had in the past seven or eight years. And I, I like to lean, though, towards stats that people can kind of visualize and understand. So go back to the Buffalo Bills. You know, Orchard Park, where their stadium is, had a significant amount of snow. And when all was said and done, one of the stats that really stood out to me was out of the entire Buffalo Bill team, only two members of the team were taller than the amount of snow that hit that stadium. So for folks who are going like, we're Buffalo, we're used to this, uh, you know, the normalcy of it. I think it's really things like that that kind of put it into perspective because you're talking professional athletes who tend to be bigger than the average person to begin with. And only two of them could have had their heads, not even their eyes, but just the tops of their heads kind of poking out. So I think when you when you see stats like that, it really kind of nails it down to the viewer at home that, hey, this is a huge event. And, uh, you, you know, it really was because Jim's not kidding. We had people at the Weather Channel are 
on-camera meteorologists, like they're jockeying for position. They're like, no, I want to go. I want to go. Because, you know, we're all weather geeks here at the Weather Channel. And like, you know, most people are like, I don't want seven feet of snow. We really don't wish it on anybody. But our OCMs are like, no, this is mine. I am doing it and I am going. <laughs> and I think Chris Bruin was like the most excited person we had. And I just, I literally, just a few minutes ago, once again, we're recording this in December. He's already jockeying our uh, manager to get out and go into the next snowstorm. He's like, I want one more before, you know, the year ends. So it just kind of goes to show you what we got going on here. And the other thing about these lake effect snow events, and this could be the case for any of them, not just this record one, they can be very localized. And as Jen talked about that fetch of, you know, first of all, the lakes are warmer than the surrounding land at this time of year. And you know, we can geek out on that. It's related to specific heat and heat capacity. And so how land and water cool or warm at different rates. And so we get these fetches. And so Buffalo was really in the sweet spot for what I like to call these training effects of snow, if you will, in the same location. It's really a plume and literally miles, perhaps north or south, you go from seven feet of snow to almost nothing. Melissa, how do you think about sort of conveying stories like that where you have this sort of really localized extreme snow event including thunderstorm, give us your perspective as a weather producer and a meteorologist thinking about this. I think one of the things, and that's what's so difficult, is when you're conveying, getting closer to the event and leading up to it, that there is going to be that sweet spot. And it's where is that going to be? And the public, they have, sometimes they don't fully understand where those ingredients are coming together and how difficult these events are to forecast and how even leading up to it, even before we started covering it necessarily widespread on air, seeing those totals creeping up and seeing kind of those bullseyes of snow going back and forth and where was that going to be? And I think that's something that conveying leading up to it is you could be five miles down the road and you're going to see snow, but you're not being in that seven feet of snow bullseye that just is so hard to fathom for me being from Georgia born and raised. I can't fathom seven feet of snow. So I think that's something is, and that's what's so beautiful about the team that we have is we can really dive into those details of why are we going to see these events? What is the ingredient, so to speak, of where that sweet spot's going to be? We talk about, like you mentioned, those training thunderstorms. We just had those training snow bands and it was just impressive to see our, our live cameras and to see that snow adding up from the morning to the afternoon to the night and how it was just a multi-day event we were covering. And speaking of events that sometimes can be a little bit difficult, particularly with the intensity uh, forecast, hurricanes, 2022 presented quite a few interesting and honestly devastating moments as well. And I want to focus on multiple aspects. I should mention in full disclosure, we're recording this in the first week of December. Uh, there is a potential named storm uh, even in December that I'm watching uh, I think it has some chance of development in the National Hurricane Center. I haven't checked the latest on it, but I was watching it last night. So even though we've technically ended the hurricane season in November, uh, November 30th, uh, we are still watching tropical events. And that has become a, somewhat of a theme in the last 20 years or so. But I want to work backwards to, uh, I guess, Hurricane Nicole or actually started as a subtropical storm. So Jen, talk to the, the listeners about why what a sub why we call these subtropical storms. I think it I I'm just gonna weigh in a little bit. I think it maybe confuses the public some I have people all the time what's the difference between a subtropical storm and a tropical storm? Um why don't we convey it that way and then 
what happened from your perspective with Nicole that really caught your attention? Yeah. You know, I, I just want to start by saying this hurricane season, when you look at the numbers, it was average, you know, basically number of storms, number of hurricanes. I think it was like 14 named storms. Yeah. Very close to average. But um, it was really anything but average when it came to all of the individual storms themselves. And um, we'll go to, to Nicole first, just the late season of it. The fact that it started subtropical. I mean, it was it was just weird, right? It was it was late November. At this point in the season, you expect things to start winding down, but we know it can happen. And the hurricane season does run through November 30th. And a subtropical storm isn't completely warm core. It can sometimes start on or be connected to a front at first. They're often very lopsided. They don't have that really tight core of wind and warm temperatures like you would find in a tropical storm. And I do think it's an important difference because they they are different. They behave differently. And we we did talk about that in the communication of Nicole from the beginning, that because it was starting as subtropical and certainly could have lived its whole life that way, that the effects were going to be spread out, that there was going to be a large area of onshore flow just because it was a large system, as subtropical systems often are. So it was it was late season. I don't think that's what really caught anyone off guard. I think what caught folks off guard was just the extreme erosion that happened in Daytona Beach shores. And and even really all the way down to Melbourne and Vero Beach, we saw some some bad erosion. And that wasn't just from one storm, though. That was the effects of multiple tropical systems, nor'easters, coastal um, sea level rise like the, it wasn't just from from one circumstance. J.D., what was the headline with Nicole for you? Uh, for me, it was really the size and scope of the storm. So, you, you know, we have a late season storm. It's a category one. Uh, and I think, you know, this goes back into the broader message of trying to messaging out systems and relying on categories and things like that. But it was such a large system. I don't think folks understand that when we're talking storm surge and effects from the storms itself, it's not just wind speeds. It's how much you know, ocean, that wind is going over before it hits the land, how large that wind field is. And that was one of the things with Nicole is that wind field was massive. At one point, tropical storm force winds extended from about Charleston, South Carolina, all the way down to almost Miami, Florida. You know, that is a massive system. That is a lot of open water for those winds to go over. And that really compounded, as Sejin was saying, the effects of the erosion from all the other systems. Because really with hurricanes this year, the eastern coast of, coast of Florida got a one-two punch. You know, they got the backside of Ian as it was rolling through. And then before they even had time to recover, they had that massive wind field from Nicole that just slammed into the coast. And it's just something that's really hard to recover from. And I think that was our biggest message for folks ahead of Nicole was you haven't had time to recover, but you have to begin to prepare for the storm. And you have to begin to really prepare for things that you're not expecting, typically out of a, you know, what you would consider a garden variety. I hate to use that term, but, you know, category one storm. And Melissa, you, you heard size was a real theme of the, the storms. When we think about Ian, I think that was a big messaging challenge because many people were familiar with Charlie, had lived through Charlie in that part of Florida for the initial U.S. landfall. But as, as your colleagues, too, Ostro, talked about, 
Charlie basically fit inside the eye of Ian and uh, Dr. Nab. And I talked about that on another episode of Weather Geeks. Be sure to check out our recap of the hurricane season with Dr. Nab. Uh, it, it is live now as you are listening, as we're recording. It actually went live today. Melissa, when we think about Ian, again, there's been a lot of conversation about did people move people out in time? Was there ample warning? Uh, did we miss the forecast by saying it Tampa and even at some point Panhandle of Florida versus, uh, say, Lee County in southwest Florida? Well, there are studies that suggest that much of that region was always in the cone within five days. And in fact, in, on Monday or so, there were already storm surge warnings out. What was your perspective as you're there at the Weather Channel on how to message that storm and the implications? I mean, I think one of the difficult things is, as we know, no storm is the same, so no messaging is going to be the same. And when it's been a relatively, this is kind of your first big system, I think, yeah, a lot of people, especially in Florida, they're kind of numb to that. And so I think the messaging was hard with Ian because as we've talked about the whole inside the cone, outside the cone, at the end of the day, as, as we seem to convey and try to do our best to convey, I think it's bridging the science of what we do with the social of what we have to convey. It's finding that sweet spot is that, yes, whether you're inside the cone, outside the cone, we've seen these jogs a couple of miles. I mean, you think, you know, oh, go three miles down the road or go five miles down the road. Doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about a system, a little bit can make a big difference. And so I think the cone, I think that's something that will be studied, especially with Ian, but those areas, they were in the cone. And I think it's one of those, if it's anywhere in your neck of the woods, you need to start being prepared. And so I think even though Nicole maybe had those wider impacts, it was more far stretching. Ian still was a good sized storm and was still going to bring those impacts. And so I think that's leading up into the days of Ian, trying to convey that as best you can, because again, a little jog this way or that way is going to have those implications. So I think it's just conveying to not focus on mm -hmm. the cone. I think we show it, we have to show it, it has a message, but still there are so many people who don't understand what the cone is. Yeah, the, the impacts, it's it's it, 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 65%, 66% chance that the center of the storm will be anywhere in that cone. And I know at the Weather Channel, you don't show the center line. But Jen, as you think about uh, Hurricane Ian, uh, are, are there things that as a weather community we could have done differently? Or do you think it was a relatively good forecast given the circumstances? Well, given the circumstance and the models and what, you know, forecasters were working with, it was a very good forecast. It's just that the public has come to expect near perfection when it comes to forecasting. And you you look at, especially when it comes to track, the past history, you know, NHC has been spot on days in advance and it's um, it, that that's hard to repeat time and time and time again, given that we're dealing with mother nature and um, steering currents and, you know, other things at play here beyond just the hurricane itself. So, you know, I think that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it, it's really hard to communicate something that's never happened before. And we've never seen storm surge like this in this area. 
And so how, how do you describe how that looks? We have a great animation at the Weather Channel that shows storm surge and how high it gets in perspective to people and homes. But that's still hard to imagine that, that happening where you lived if it never happened before. And um, I don't know how to fix that part of it because it's really hard to tell someone something's going to happen that they can't imagine. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we are geeking out on the weather of 2022. I'm at the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with three colleagues from the Weather Channel, Jen Carfagno, on-camera meteorologist, J.D. Disharoon, uh, and Melissa Coogan, uh, who are both producers there at the Weather Channel. So, Jen, you will see uh, on the air, and you will see the work of and brain power of J.D. and Melissa. So it's a real team effort as we think about a year's worth of weather. I don't want to leave hurricanes yet, but Jen, Jen made a really good point in the last segment. You know, we get sort of caught up on this idea of are we going to have an active weather, a hurricane season? And the last couple of seasons have been well above active. And I think the projections from most of the folks that do those types of things were for an above average season. And it started off slow. Uh, one thing is, since we're talking about the season, I don't think we had a named hurricane at all in the month of August. And that mm -hmm. was odd. And people were saying, hey, what's going on? But then it then it ramped up. And as Jen noted, we ended up roughly about average in terms of climatological numbers. But there were some doozies in there. We've talked about a couple. The other storm that really comes to mind uh, for me is Fiona. Uh, Melissa, what are your thoughts and initial reaction? Because I remember Fiona, you know, we were talking about Fiona from Puerto Rico all the way up to Greenland and Nova Scotia, uh, the scope of that storm. So, uh, Melissa, give me your initial thoughts on Fiona. I think that was one of my first major storms here. Um, I hadn't been here that long. And I, and I think just like you said, Dr. Shepard, how we were talking about Fiona in an area where Puerto Rico, we expect tropical activity. That's normal. And the impacts that we saw all the way up into Nova Scotia. I mean, I think that alone for the public to see how these tropical systems, they may lose these characteristics. They may move away and not be impacting the U.S. anymore. But I think it's something just to see how they still have such power. And I think that for me covering that was pretty impressive to be talking about a system so long and seeing it impacting such a wide swath and so many miles. And for so long, it was what, a, a week or I can't even remember how long we were talking about Fiona. 
Yeah, it was it was a long time because yeah. you know it was one of those storms that kind of trekked across the basin a bit, then went up to Puerto Rico, and then came up the coast and then into Nova Scotia. And I think when we talk about the the hurricanes going up through Nova Scotia, I think for a lot of people, they like Melissa just mentioned, you know, it's not the U.S. They don't really pay attention. But if you if you think about Fiona, um, you know, before the models kind of tracked on to Nova Scotia, some of them had it going in towards Maine. And so to kind of put that into perspective, how unusual it would be for us to be talking about a system with hurricane force intensity going into Maine, that's how unusual it is for these systems to go up to into Nova Scotia. So even though it's not the United States, like this is an area that gets brushed with tropical activity oftentimes, but oftentimes it's not a direct hit. So that just goes to show you how rare and unusual this type of event is. Yeah, I think I tweeted at one point a uh, uh one of the cones and part of the cone was touching Greenland, which I just thought was really interesting and, and strange. Jen, any, any thoughts that you have on Fiona? Just about the rapid intensification. And that's an, that's an age old problem that, you know, is difficult when it comes to intensity forecasting. But when some, when a hurricane goes through rapid intensification, and even, even if you're forecasting, and again, it's hard to envision something that hasn't happened yet. And when it rapidly develops like that, I think that can catch people off guard. And, and that's, again, been a prevailing theme of many of the storms in recent hurricane seasons as well. I want to shift focus now to severe weather because we often have severe weather. Uh, it's a part of our year. Uh, as we've tried to convey in this podcast many times, there is no severe weather season. We can have tornadoes and hail and, and convective wind gusts at any time of the year. Uh, but certainly the most active time is the spring into summer. So there were several different um, severe weather events. There was a tornado outbreak in April, for example. Uh, we had uh, significant storms in May. Uh, hailstorms throughout the upper uh, Midwest and central part of the Midwest as well, uh, southern tornado outbreak in March and so forth. For any of you, and I, again, I, there are many examples, but is there anything about the 2022 severe weather activity that catches your eye? And, and Jen, I'll, I'll come to you because I know you, you probably were covering quite a few of these on air. And again, is, is there anything particular that comes for you in 2022 that stands out about the severe weather activity? I was out for a couple of um, severe weather events. One was down in Louisiana and I started in, well, I started in New Orleans and I drove to Lafayette and then I came back to New Orleans because of the tornado, the EF3 that hit there. And that in itself was notable in one of the extreme tornadoes that they've seen the damage was devastating. And in New Orleans, so often we talk about hurricane threats and damage and to see a tornado, it's just a different kind of destruction. I know that definitely hit people really hard, especially the community of Araby, where I was, that was hard hit. Um, and the other one was um, in Arkansas and leading to, to, uh, to Memphis ultimately. And you know, none of those areas are a stranger to severe weather and thunderstorms, but certainly in both cases, when I was there, just there, there is a heightened awareness around big severe weather days. And I think maybe even more than in the past schools get out early, right? That those type of, um, that type of awareness is definitely in the community more than ever before. I think, I think that's a good thing. And I think studying, you know, both areas that you mentioned weren't necessarily the typical Great Plains region that we think of when we think about tornadoes. And that's consistent with some of the work of, you know, Victor Gensini and 
Harold Brooks and others that suggest that we're seeing somewhat of a shift of tornadic activity more into the southeast. And as I look through the list here, I'm, I'm you know, I'm pulling from the billion dollar uh, disasters page that J.D. shared with us before the podcast. And many of these severe weather outbreaks were in the south uh, as opposed to sort of the typical Great Plains region. So, J.D., uh, is 2022 sort of indicative of what we would expect for any given year, or are there things that to you stand out about severe weather? You know, I think really for for us this year, because we, obviously we did have severe weather in the plains this year, it, it just wasn't as big, you know, it wasn't the outbreaks that we've seen in years past. And I think it's really kind of just as we go through time year after year, just kind of solidifying what we have been noticing, which is that, you know, we are seeing more, not only more and more tornadic activity, uh, in the southeast, but we're also starting to see stronger tornadoes in the southeast. We're seeing more of these EF2s and EF3s, whereas I remember growing up, I'm, I was born and raised in Georgia. We have EF3s, EF4s every once in a while, rarely in a blue moon. But what we're starting to see with the trend in the southeast is that those violent tornadoes are starting to uptick a little bit more and more. And I think this year really does just add another concrete example of that for the reference books that this trend is starting to make that shift off towards the east. I mean, it was just, you know, again, we're recording in December of 2022. It was just, you know, a week ago, week and a half ago that we had those tornadoes slice through Mississippi. And we had some very strong and violent uh, tornadoes that went through Mississippi and, and into Alabama. So, you know, I think it really is just adding more evidence to that theory that we're just seeing that shift move off towards the south and east. I think we Possibly, hopefully we caught you there. I, I had a little blip in the audio there, but I, I, I think you were talking a little bit about the recent uh, tornadic activity in the southeast and parts of Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. You know, one other thing that I, I find it um, interesting from a meteorological perspective, back in June, there was a derecho. Uh, and that is a term that for many in the public is more familiar now, but I think in the lexicon uh, really has gained popularity publicly in the last decade or so, although meteorologically like polar vortex and bombogenesis, it's been around for a while. Um, so I guess the question for you, Melissa, is when we have a term or when we see the possibility of an event like a derecho or a bombogenesis type storm, as, as a weather producer or meteorologist, are you thinking about how to convey that story and when, when you're presenting it for uh, presentation, you know, how, how do you convey the messaging that you're going to be dealing with a derecho? I think first off, it's informing, just like you would in any subject. It's starting with the basics. And I think it's, here's what a derecho is. If you've never heard this term, like you said, for us, a lot of these terms, we've learned them years ago, and it's been part of our lexicon for years. But to the public, it sounds scary or oh, that wouldn't happen here. But I think you have to start out with the basics, just like you would in anything else. So here's the definition. Here's how the ingredients come together. Just like if you know, it's an analogy we see all the time, like baking a cake. What are the ingredients needed to see this kind of event come together? And I think coming from local, and I think I see it across local and national, it's all about transparency. And it's, especially if there's any uncertainty leading up to an event, it's Here's what we're confident on. Here's what we're still waiting to see if these ingredients come together. And here's what we're seeing right now with the forecast. And I think that's where you build the trust of the public. 
And I think that's where you inform the public too. So when you start seeing signals of a derecho, I think it's, here's again, reminding people what it is, even though for us, we kind of just assume everybody knows, especially here in the building at the Weather Channel, we all know a lot of weather terms. And so I think it's, again, informing, starting with the basics and then confirming what we're certain of or very confident on and what still is going to evolve and comparing those models and whatever that might be to kind of give the public and your viewers the best case of and preparation. I think that's something we do a great job on is I can tell you it's going to happen, but how do you prepare for it? Whether it be tropical, severe weather, derecho, whatever it might be, I think preparation is another big thing that we try to emphasize as well. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Eats podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Melissa Coggin, Jen Carfagno, and J.D. Disharoon. I want to shift now to the hydrological extremes, the hydrometeorological extremes of drought and flooding. This In the Western U.S., much of the year, we've seen drought, uh, significant drought. And I know a big story that the Weather Channel has been covering is the fact that the Mississippi River has been too low at some places. Barges can't get down the river, and that affects supply chain. So you talk about a so what, one of these things that is happening, perhaps not where you live, but we all eat cornflakes, and we all eat bread, and corn and, and grains come down the Mississippi River. And so that's really a so what factor. Um, Jen, how do you convey this Drought. I know. Again, we've seen drought throughout the year from the Mississippi westward, and of course there were fires. And as I think we were talking off air, uh, there wasn't a signature big fire, but there have certainly been uh, several wildfires that we saw uh, out in the west. And also, we can't forget the heat wave associated, and they're related to the thing that whenever you have persistent high pressure, you get dry conditions and you get 116 degree temperatures in Sacramento, California. So Jen, thoughts on the drought generally? Yeah. And, and well, they're so interrelated as well. I did look back to see this year in 2022 and then and still developing, of course, but in 2021, we had a 9.5 Four billion dollar loss in 2021 from drought and heat, and then 9.3 so far in 2022 from drought and heat. And so, you know, th- this is a reoccurring situation, and it's not necessarily in the same places each year. The West, yes, we've had back to back, but this year the plains really came in with um, what, what kind of started as a flash drought, and then never really 
got better. I mean, if you remember at the beginning of the summer, Dallas had gone such a record long stretch without rainfall. They did finally get some rain, but in many other cases to the north, they just never recovered with with rainfall. And then, of course, we saw that ease over to the Mississippi River. So, you know, this um, this is a story that you can see visually in the rivers, like the Mississippi River, in the lakes, the Great Salt Lake at record low levels, Lake Powell, um, Lake Mead, Lake Mead. Yes. And so um, those are very visual ways of of sharing that story and actually goes beyond just the weather. It goes into impacts, water supply, power supply, shipping, as you talked about down the Mississippi River. And so, you know, this is something that goes beyond just what Mother Nature is bringing or not bringing. Yeah, it it really is. And it's sometimes a difficult story to cover in terms of drought. Uh, And and I I alluded to this And before I leave drought, but I want to mention, and this is a big part of the 2022, we're in what's called a triple dip El Nino. I'm sorry, triple dip La Nina right now, which uh, I'm talking with Judah Cohen for another episode of the uh, podcast. That's very rare. And the reason I bring that up is the teleconnection patterns, these changes in the atmospheric patterns, jet stream patterns due to La Nina and El Nino. The La Nina teleconnection pattern doesn't bode well for easing drought conditions in the West. So so that's something certainly we'll keep an eye on as we leave 2022 and move into 2023. But J.D., sort of corollary to the drought story is the heat. I mean, we, we saw record heat again in Europe. Uh, London, uh, parts of London uh, recorded their highest temperatures ever and people there don't have air conditioning, but we saw similar heat in in the West. I mentioned earlier, I believe Sacramento, California in September, by the way, hit 116 degrees. So how do you think about covering heat? Because again, we know that extreme temperatures are what kill people most in this country from a weather perspective, uh, but it's kind of a silent killer heat is... uh, uh, reflect on the heat that we saw this year. Yeah, it's really heat and actually goes back to the drought as well. It's just, it's a little more difficult to cover because we don't have the, you know, the viral video of, you know, winds in a hurricane or a tornado moving through. So to, uh, visually speaking, it's harder to catch the viewer's attention, but it is one of the, you have to cover it because especially with not only this year, it was last year as well. We're talking extreme heat in Northern California, Oregon, up into Washington, And, you know, talking about a lot of folks in Europe don't have air conditioners. A lot of folks in the Pacific Northwest don't have air conditioners. So, you know, when you're talking temperatures in the hundred and teens in the afternoon and they're not getting below 80 at night, uh, it's really that nighttime temperature. I think that folks don't realize is the silent killer because your body and your surroundings and your living environment is not able to cool down and allow you to recover and to recuperate. And I think that's really kind of how you have to tell the story is you have to focus on what people are going to be feeling, what people can be expecting when this moves through. And especially when we saw this year, it's not a day, it's prolonged. So, you know, if you're, you have to kind of tell people like, look, you know, you're going to, some of you are going to try and tough it out. We don't recommend it. We know you're going to do it, but if you're struggling in night one, you really need to get help in night two and three. That's kind of how you have to frame the story. Uh, because if you're having difficulties at the beginning of it, by the end of it, you're really going to be having some severe issues. And this is a situation that is for a lot of people uh, preventable. And I say that because there are shelters and things like that, that do open up in these types of events. You just kind of have to make sure people are aware of that. Cause a lot of people aren't and get them to those areas that can help them. So they're not just suffering in silence at home. And we talked about one side of the extreme hydrometeorological distribution drought, but there were some significant flooding 
events this year, too. One that comes to mind uh, was the Kentucky Missouri flood. In fact, there were sort of a series of flood events over a couple of days that come to mind uh, with the, in the June, July, I believe mostly July time frame. Um, Mo- Melissa, flooding. That's not just the function of what falls from the sky, but we know that intense rainfall is certainly a part of that in terms of, and I I believe with these events that happened in 2022, as I recall, uh, we had uh, weather systems that set up training as we, and we talked about training a little bit with, uh, with this lake effect snow, but this situation where you just had series of heavy rain events or convective cells moving over the same location. So give me your perspective on flooding that we saw this year and the challenges associated with covering it. I mean, I think it's just, I can think of so many events that we saw even there into Southwestern Virginia was another one. And I think that's the story is the training and eventually just trying to convey that the soil can only handle so much and it has to go somewhere. And especially terrain, you know, where you are, are you downstream? I think that's something else too, is some of these locations, it was just the worst possible scenario, everything coming together, you know, the copious amounts of rainfall day after day. And then also, I think the river flood, I, I think that's something too, that is people, you know, they get through these events and it's sunny and it's beautiful. And then the rivers are still responding. It's still taking days for the rivers to come up. And then you're dealing with the river flooding. And I think just like we were talking about with heat, people think they can tough it out and they see these flooded areas and they think they can drive through them. We preach all the time, turn around, don't drown, but it's so true. And and I think we see so many, not as much in some of these events this year, but as we know, on average, so many people lose their lives in their car with flooding. And it's just trying to convey that. And I think that's just, we saw so many, like you mentioned of those events where it was just the training and there's really nothing you can do. And you're just trying to convey that and, and give people the information to get to safer ground and, and keep them informed. And, and what I've been using to kind of guide the discussion today for the listeners is NOAA puts out a U.S. billion dollar weather climate disasters analysis every year. And so much of what we've been talking about, these were events that not only cause loss of life, and we certainly offer our thoughts and prayers there, but cost at least a billion dollars in economic damage. And in some cases, well beyond the billion dollars, that's just sort of minimum threshold. I want to kind of give everyone the last word here. I'll start with JD and then come to Melissa and end with Jen. JD, put a bow on your thoughts for the 2022 uh, weather season. Uh, You know, it really just as bad as it sounded, it, it was more of the same. And we haven't, re- and it goes back to what you had mentioned, Dr. Shepard, which was the triple dip La Nina. You know, we're, we're not seeing improvement in the West. We're seeing severe weather patterns building up into the South and into the East. We're seeing hurricane activity and the rapid intensification of these storms. And it's unfortunate that these hurricanes are making landfall. Um, you know, you can have a hurricane in the middle of the ocean that undergoes rapid intensification. But if it doesn't hit land, a lot of people don't know about it. And it's just been really unfortunate that we've had several years back to back where they're making landfall, impacting people's lives and just rupturing economies. So unfortunately, like that's my my takeaway from 22 is it is more of the same. And I'm hoping that we can get a big overall pattern shift, you know, in 2023, so that we can start to kind of for a lot of these folks, 
recover and start to pull out and see a brighter light ahead. And before I come to Melissa, be sure to catch up, catch the episode with Judah Cohen podcast episode because he gives his preview of the 2023 into early 2023 winter outlook. But um, Melissa, your your thoughts on 2022? I mean, mirroring what JD said, I think so much of the same and and seeing what I notice is I feel more extremes in, in more areas too, whether it's with heat in the Pacific Northwest and we talked about Europe, these extreme flooding events, seeing these extreme severe weather events. I mean, we've just seen one and I think we just like we define a hurricane season, it's a man-made season. We talk about times we typically see severe weather, but we're seeing these extreme, even severe weather events occurring outside of that window that we tend to think of. And so I think that's the new normal. I think people go, well, that's not normal. These extremes, they are becoming the new normal. And I think it's as much we can't go back, well, this is average. It's how can we adjust to the new average? That is the extremes that I feel like we're seeing from coast to coast. Yeah, sure. Climate change is certainly, and the, the scientific literature supports our observations there that uh, we're seeing changes in our extreme weather events and uh, plenty of scientific literature uh, discusses that. And by the way, shout out to Pattern because uh, Weather Channel platform that really dives into some of these issues with, with more depth. Jen, your your thoughts on 2022? None of the big snowstorms fell into the billion dollar disasters. Interesting. Interesting. Interestingly, and we had a couple big ones. I'm thinking of two in the southeast, and that always shuts down life when you have southeastern snow. Also, a big blizzard in Boston. Yes. And um, when you look at, though, sort of the impact and it bubbles up, it, it, they were not billion dollar disasters as recorded. Um, and, th- you know, thankfully, there were, were not was not big loss of life in those events. either. Jen, but but could, could I ask yeah. you a question about that? Yeah. Because that raises an interesting point. I mean, is, bill, is the billion dollar metric the right metric? Because though they weren't billion dollar events, many of those things that you mentioned were very disruptive. Well, correct to to life, um, to work, to the economy, uh, but but then the question is how how do we measure the biggest impacts and how will how will we remember the year of twenty twenty two looking back? Will we remember how much it cost us the rebuilding that had to happen, um, the complete devastation? I mean, some of the flooding that you know just completely devastated towns that happened in Kentucky, and um, I'm thinking about the St. Louis flooding too, and in in all of those events. They, there was record something, whether it was record rainfall rates or record storm surge in Ian. Um, when it came to the snowfall, there was some records. I think the Rhode Island and Providence might have set some record snow out of this one. But, um, you know, snowstorms are a part of our our winter in in North America. And so I guess it didn't bubble up to be one of the you know most notable. So I do think that billion dollar list is a good one to use as how this year will be remembered. Yeah. And for me, I'll I'll just add my thoughts. For me, I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, Jen, but for me, 2022 sort of uh, uh, represented the amalgamation of the new normal that Melissa also talked about. You had this sort of potpourri of events that we know happen naturally, but as you noted, they all had some record or extreme character to them in some way. And so I think 2022 could almost be a poster child, if you will, for sort of what our year of weather will look like going forward. It'll take different forms and shapes and different formats of activity, but 
these records and extremes will just be a part of our discussion. I, I really want to thank all of you. This has been awesome as I thought it would, would be. Uh, thank you all for joining us on this recap, Weather Geeks recap for the year 2022. And uh, we'll see what 2023 brings. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Dr. It was fun, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time and next year on Weather Geeks. Bye.